Hi, this is Reverend Tommy, and I'd like to welcome you back to the garden where we explore the big questions about life. I invite you to open your minds and be receptive to seeing things differently. So let's get metaphysical. Thank you, Ilma, for that lovely meditation because, you know, we, we really don't have to live in the past. We really don't. It is completely our choice whether we want to carry those things around with us or not. And it is very, very easy to release them. It really is. Try it sometime. <laughs> Today's lesson is unity and me. This week, well, first of all, I didn't expect it probably end up being a series, but it probably will be because once I started putting down things, and it's just too much to cover, so... It'll probably be another one or maybe even two. <laughs> Who knows? Anyway, I'd like to take a personal approach to my experience with the unity movement. I want to share with you what caught my attention about unity. And I'm going to get down to the bottom line answer first, and then I'll go backwards and kind of cover some of the points along the way. So what attracted me? The answer, the short answer, is unity's willingness to look at the topic of religion, of spirituality, from an objective, reasonable point of view that turns out to be very cosmic as well, and that's very appealing to me. As you may know, unity has no dogma that you have to believe in to be part of the organization. Now, why is that? Well, because when you have dogma, you are strapped to a perspective reflective of a certain consciousness, and you become rigid and stagnant. As the song says, you learn more and you realize how little you know. Consciousness, individual as well as collective, is forever expanding. Thus, written dogma, in a way, is in effect being locked in a time warp. Think of it that way. And I could give you some examples, but I'm not going to. Some would view a lack of dogma as a weakness, as a lack of conviction, as a lack of certainty. To these people, I would remind them that they live in an infinite universe, and certainty is a very, very small part of it. I see the lack of rigidity as strength and as a way to continue to grow. Unity co-founder Charles Fillmore said, I reserved the right to change my mind anytime because he knew that the consciousness was expanding and who you are today is not the same as who you're gonna to be tomorrow. You will have learned something, you will have grown, even if it's just in the slightest way. Sometimes they're big steps, sometimes they're little steps, but there's all, you're always moving forward. As I've told you all before, I've been a seeker to the answers of this mystery that we call life for a very, very long time. I started asking questions when I was seven years old, taking doctrina in Catholic school. And I've been asking questions since, and I'm still asking questions. I've had the opportunity during all those years to see a lot of different points of view. The central problem with a point of view is or can be, let's say, the belief that one particular point of view, yours, mine, whomever's, 
is right, quote unquote, while the others are wrong. Unity makes no such claim, and that was an instant attraction to me. I don't think there's a single point of view more flagrantly expresses this than Christianity. And that's not to be critical, that's just, I'm just saying. So growing up, for me, this was a major problem and a source of sadness about that fact, to say nothing of naivete. To be part of a spiritual community that believed in and promoted exclusivity seemed wrong to me somehow. It just didn't seem right. Later in my study of philosophy, I learned that Plato said that all knowledge is recollection. In other words, that at the deepest part of our true being, we know the truth. And when you hear something that doesn't sound right to me, then that is simply not ringing in harmony with that inner truth. And that's how I felt about it. I always said, I finally came to the conclusion about Christianity, and I love it, and we, yeah, well, we'll talk about it. But I, I came to the conclusion that something is right about it, and something is wrong about it. And I'll tell you about that in a minute. Returning to the idea of objectivity and reason, I asked the question, why does Christianity make such a claim, such a bold claim? The answer is because it was written in John 14, verse 1 through 6. It says, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to, to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Nobody ever quotes that one. You know the way to the place where I am going. That sounds like Plato's recollection or something. And then Thomas says to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how, how can we know the way? And Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The Christian claim to, Christi to exclusivity comes from this one last verse. I have heard pastors say it over and over and over. I heard the guy at, the, at that pastoral class say it. It is their point of authority and of certainty. But there's that magic word again, certainty. We've talked about that. The Bible is purported to be the word of God, the truth. And how can you argue with that if that is indeed what it is, the word of God? But the question is, is it? See, again, I'm not being critical, nor am I trying to be radical or anything. The real truth is that we don't know who wrote these words. We really don't, if you want to know the truth. And some biblical scholars don't even know or would agree that Jesus actually said these words. I've talked about this before. If you are a serious student of the Bible, a serious student, then you must be prepared to face these kind of questions because I guarantee you, if you go to seminary school anywhere, at Yale, at Princeton, or anything, you're going to hear this. I don't know why they come back and totally have amnesia and don't talk about it anymore, but trust me, they hear it. They really do. Let me tell you why I'm just bringing this up. And this is because we at Unity are seeking the truth. And if the truth happens to make us a little uncomfortable now and then, well, then that's okay. 
it may, it, we lose that little warm and fuzzy feeling because we lose that sense of certainty. We become stagnant. We decide we don't want to grow anymore. So we say, no, I got it. You don't need to tell me anymore. I, I, I figured it out. Really? Infinite universe, you got it figured out. Awesome. We call ourselves truth students, therefore. If it's the truth, then it's the truth, and we will work with it. Again, let me be clear. I'm not being critical of the Bible. I think it's a wonderful thing. We'll talk about that. Remember one very thing, important thing, though, about the Bible that unity talks about. And that is that the stories, that even if the stories are not actually true or historically accurate, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter any more than whether there was an actual race between a tortoise and a hare, as I said before. Because that is not the point. The event is an external symbolism of an internal idea or a moral story, like a parable. It is a lesson. Do not get bogged down with the external point where you miss the message. Here's another truth, that these stories were never intended to be read literally. They are oral stories passed down that eventually were written down. Just consider Genesis 1, for example. It reads like an eyewitness account. But think about it. There was nobody there. Kind of strange. It's a story. It's a metaphor. This, of course, is one of the major differences between unity and traditional approach to the Bible. We see the Bible as symbolism. We see it metaphysically, we say. That's what we mean by that, symbolically. My personal summary on that is this. This is what I came up with. If the Bible is literal, then it is about some people. But if it is symbolic, then it's the story of all people. And given it's a spiritual book, which one sounds more reasonable to you? Let me make my final point about I am the way, quoted in John. As I said, maybe Jesus said this, maybe he didn't say that. Maybe somebody decided to fill it in because that happened too. Scholars know that it is highly likely, you know, they were copying these things. They were looking at, there was 90% of the population could not read, okay, first of all. And the some of the scribes could not read. They were just able to look at words and copy symbols. And so there's a lot of problems and, and there's a lot of room for error. This is a fact. And so the, Bible's belief, the Bible writers, the gospel writers, believed that Jesus is a Messiah and they were trying to make a case for that. What if, for example, though, when Jesus, uh, that Jesus had actually said, I am showing you the way, and some zealous uh, scribe decided to, that it wasn't strong enough of a statement that he had heard passed down. Because again, remember, these are not eyewitness accounts. This is stuff that was written way, way, way after. And he said, no, let's just go with I am the way. Let's take out showing you. And it changes it very dramatically. And I heard in one of my lessons something similar to that. He said, imagine that the scribe writing got this particular word down. The difference between celebrate and celebut. One letter. A totally different meaning here. Very different. Anyway, I personally, and I think Unity would agree, would say that Jesus was telling us not that, to follow him so much, but to follow his example 
Because remember, he always deferred power to the Father. It is not I, but the Father working through me. It wasn't about me. As, as Butterworth said in my one lesson, it wasn't a Christocentric message. It wasn't a, a message about him. It was a God-centered message. It was about the power that is the God principle, idea. That's what he was talking about. And so to me, another thing I like uh, about unity is that you know, ever since the 80s, I had read Zen books and things like that. And, and there's always that, that nice element of uh, stories in Zen. And there's one that says, that talks about the finger pointing at the moon and mistaking the finger for the moon, you know, and, and focusing on that. And that's something like this. So bottom line, Jesus was not saying, follow me. He was saying, do as I do. That's what he was saying. And think about what he did. What did he do? He loved and he forgave. And he dealt with everybody. He was all-inclusive. All-inclusive. Nobody was left out. He did have some guys he didn't get along with very well, like the Pharisees. But that was because these guys were like so strict about, again, they were rigid. And Jesus was not rigid. He was a Jew. And he was a practicing Jew. But he didn't really uh, observe the laws quite like the Pharisees, who, I mean, they were sticklers for the law. And so you have that idea about, it's not about the letter of the law, it's the spirit of the law. That was Jesus. The Pharisees were the other guys. So what I want to talk about this morning is why I brought up this topic at all. And that is not only because of how my relationship to unity is, but also your relationship to unity. And I wonder uh, how you feel about it. And I also wonder if you could express yourself to somebody who had never heard of it. And I want to give an example. Lynn, Reverend Linda and I were up uh, in Austin taking some classes recently. And one of the days my, my wife had gone to the outlets, and so I didn't have a car, but, you know, it wasn't far away. I said, I'll just call a cab. I call a cab, and... And I tell the guy, hey, take me over to Unity of the Hills. And we're, we're talking like less than 10 minutes. And, I, and the cab driver said, what's that? Where is it? <laughs> and I told him. And he said, what is it? I said, it's a church. And he said, what kind of church? I said, it's a Unity church. I said, well, it's kind of a Christian-based church that, well, let's just say sees Christianity maybe a little bit differently. And, he, and then he, has, he tells me, uh, I'm listening. Tell me more. And I went, oh. <laughs> now I feel like I'm playing a chess game. It's like, okay, now what? Now what's my next move? Where do I go from here? <laughs> so then he says, so you accept Jesus as God's only son and, and who came to the world to die for the, for the, to, came to die for the sins of the world, right? I went like, uh, I understand that, that that's one interpretation of things, yeah. Um, but um, maybe just a little bit different from that. A and he says, well, I thought you were Christian. I'm, good point. <laughs> And, and the reason I say good point is because, as again, I, say, I study a lot. And, and I do know that there are some 420-something Christian denominations out there. And though they differ in many, many, many things, they do not differ on this one point. They do not differ on that one point about Jesus being God's only son and that he came to die for the sins of the world. And we do. And so you wonder, like, well... How does this work? See, because by definition, Christianity is a faith. It's not a path. It is the belief in Jesus and what he came to do. In unity, 
we say Jesus is the great example, not the great exception, as we just defined. So how do we make such a claim that we can be called Christian? And this is really big. And somebody asks you, then maybe you can use that as, as a way of, as a talking point of saying, well, it's, it's kind of like this. See, early on when I came to, Christ, to Unity, I heard a minister say, you know, Christianity shouldn't really be called Christianity. It should be called Paulism. Because really, tradition is following Paul and not so much Jesus. And I'm like, what? I had never heard this before. And as it turns out, the more I have learned, the more I have studied, and I've said this before, I've come to the realization that there is a big difference between the life of Jesus and the story about Jesus. When Christianity was in its infancy, there were many, many points of view. This is so important because we have the idea that Christianity, the way it exists now, somehow has always existed that way, and that could not be further from the truth. There was a lot of different points of view. Some of them even to the point where they thought he was never a man, it was purely a phantasm and uh, that's why, and so, I mean, it's broad. It really is. But in general, there was two ways of seeing the development of the, Christi of the Christian movement. And one was about focusing on the life of Jesus. And the other one was focusing on the interpretation St. Paul had of Jesus' role in this world. As I said before, Paul was an apocalyptic Jew. And we're going to talk more about that. So the difference was perspective. You see, we always talk about race consciousness. There is a race consciousness at, at place at any given time. I have a consciousness. You have a consciousness. This unity church has a consciousness, a collective consciousness. And the world has a collective consciousness. Well, the collective consciousness of the time was highly influenced by two major things. One of them was Zoroasterism, had been around for 500 years. And if you read a little bit about Zoroasterism, you will find that idea that there are two opposing forces in this world fighting, you know, to, for, you, for you or for whatever, and that ultimately the good will prevail. That whole little story, which you've heard a thousand times, Zoroasterism, that's what it is. And the other one was the apocalyptic Jew view of things. And there was a little light seasoning of Hellenistic Greek as well. So, these were the ingredients in place that gave rise to the Christian movement. And this is where I want to pick it up next time because if you look at the back of your folder, of your flyer today, I put a bunch of different uh, differences between traditional Christianity and unity, and there's a lot more to cover. So, but I wanted to set it up for this to explain to you. We're at that point that we said, Try to understand what was, trying to what was taking place at the time. Put yourself in that time frame. Because yesterday also, while doing our morning walk, Marisa and I and, and her mom, my wife, uh, I thought, you know what, I'm going to take this and kind of read it. And, and, and I've told you before, the universe is always talking to me when I'm going to do a lesson. And, and this was no different. And so I thought, well, the lesson is called Unity and Me as well as unity and you, so now I'm going to bring in unity 
and Reverend Leslie Miller into the picture. Now, Reverend Leslie Miller is going to sound astoundingly like me, but this is what she has to say about unity and her, and this is how we'll end the lesson today. From what we know, Jesus was Jewish. His family was Jewish. He grew up Jewish, surrounded mostly by other Jews. I did too. Growing up Jewish, I knew little of Jesus beyond Christmas carols and movies like The Greatest Story Ever Told. But I knew God, or thought I did, from the time I was four or five. He lived out there somewhere in the sky, always watching and making good things happen if I was good and bad things happen if I went against the rules. When it came to religion, there were a lot of rules and not all of them made sense. Still, I followed as many as I could until as a good Jewish wife and mother found myself in crisis. Addiction, depression, failing marriage, children acting out. I was certain God no longer wanted to hear from me. But I got lucky in a 12-step program. I was told to find a higher power, a God of my understanding, not someone else's. I was finished with a judging, punishing God. I was finished with a God who could align with one religion over another. All throughout the world, religions, religious divisions seemed to create prejudice, injustice, and excuses for violence. Any God worth my love would not want that. Identifying with a single my people didn't work for me anymore. All people were my people. Even the central Jewish prayer, the Shema, took on new meaning to me. Sure, that was, uh, there was only one God, and I had been taught from childhood, but now a deeper message was coming through about God is one, and God was all, and we were all one in God. This made more sense to me than anything I ever believed about God. So I was blown away. I made an appointment with my rabbi to ask if the prayer always had this meaning. But in my ignorance, I had missed it. When he told me I was wrong, I left disappointed, but not convinced. In my heart, I was, in my heart was a truth I had no choice but to follow. Jesus followed this truth. I bet he felt the same way. As I began to learn what Jesus taught using a metaphysical approach to the Bible, I imagined myself as a first century Jew. I imagined hearing Jesus preach in public while I nodded in quiet agreement that God loved unconditionally and that anyone could be healed and prospered by the faith in God's unlimited power. I heard my own truth echo back to me in Jesus saying, God made no distinctions between man or woman, Jew or Gentile, or that the Sabbath was made for people, not people for the Sabbath. If I had heard him when he was alive, how could I not have followed a teacher who made so much sense? As I learned more, I began to recognize the Christ of my own divine nature and others, and I healed 
Jesus had put the words of my heart into expression. If only it were that easy, my loving Jewish family neither understands the truth of my heart nor cares to try. It's hard to explain how, how I, always, I will always be Jewish no matter what. Jesus was always Jewish. It wasn't easy for him either. For once, he showed me the way. As his family tried to pull back home, uncomfortable with his preaching, he answered with a question pointing to the deeper spiritual idea. Who is my mother and who are my brothers? Who indeed? Amen. Amen.